I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is the truth of the matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. Today, to get to the truth of the matter, I've got my colleagues Steve Morrison, Stephanie Siegel, and Heather Conley here. Steve, of course, is the head of our Global Health Program. Heather is the head of our Europe Program. And Stephanie is a senior fellow in the Simon Chair of Political Economy at CSIS. Welcome to you all. We're facing this crisis that we've never faced before. Steve, I want to turn to you first. What is the latest We're increasingly talking about flattening the curve when it comes to coronavirus. What are your thoughts? Thanks, Andrew. Let me first say a word about testing, which is directly related to this. Um, We've gone through this very rough period of realizing the testing fiasco that's occurred across this country, that it leaves us blind and highly limited in understanding where the virus is. And much of the blame has been laid at the door of CDC. CDC's been uh, put into exile. We don't see CDC, even though it's the most important player in in thinking through and executing our response at a federal level. It's been exiled and we don't see them at the daily press briefing. There's been pretty substantial changes in the approaches to testing towards enabling a variety of private and public institutions to move forward with testing. And we're beginning to see the numbers creep up, but it's early days. It's still confusing. um, And there's still enormous questions around whether we'll be able to get visibility soon enough into this problem through the testing that's emerging uh, that will guide our response. There's, There's good reason to be very, very cautious at, at looking at that. On the flattening the curve, it's interesting that we've seen a convergence of views now around the notion that the key challenge before us is to undertake measures, social distancing generally, measures that are going to slow the transmission of the virus and try to avoid what we've seen in Italy in terms of a very steep curve, a very steep demand and that swamps health facilities that do not have the capacities to sustain and preserve life. So you get these very high fatality rates, as we're seeing in Lombardy in particular. There's an awareness. What brought about this change? I think it's the intellectual leadership of Tony Fauci together with Deborah Burks. I think it's the shock of seeing Italy and the shock of seeing the early stages of what's going on in Seattle and other hotspots. I think the Neil Ferguson model that was brought forward that said there has to, if you do not have these measures in force, you could lose upwards of 2.2 million Americans. And the argument he's made that this has to be an at least an 18-month strategy of social distancing. Some have said that it may be that it's done in spurts where we do a strong round that will have a crushing impact on economies, but it's essential. And maybe we ease back after a first round, but we're likely to have a return to this, there will be this big tension around how do you peel back? What's the exit strategy? How do you peel things back without reigniting transmission of the virus? Most 
of the forms are a social distancing, a mixture of state and municipal measures that are based on recommendations, on suggestions, mostly consensual, relatively flexible, with a, a focus on respecting civil liberties and preserving trust. But we do have movement towards harsher and uh, measures sheltering in place is over 8 million people in the Bay Area. Uh, Mayor de Blasio in New York entertaining that option for over 9 million people in New York City. Uh, and that is bringing that is going to bring forward a debate around the legal and constitutional rights to move forward in, in these areas. We're going to see courts called upon. The president himself has signaled that he may invoke authorities in order to perhaps override states and, and, and municipalities if he chooses to move towards much harsher measures. So we may see on the horizon um, a, a battle around those issues and embedded with that within that is the debate around the merits of the kind of Chinese model of, of harsh quarantines versus the more Western democratic consensual models. We can talk more about what the trade-offs are in that. The the public health community has generally been very skeptical of quarantines of that type. But I have to say, you know, many public health officials and, and many like our president himself have been very, have spoke very favorably about this with the loss of life threatened. We need measures of this kind. All right, Steve, let me, that's a lot to, to swallow. But let me break down and ask you just a couple things that I think Americans want to know. The numbers that you cited off of the Neil Ferguson model that, that Ambassador Burks, Dr. Burks, and Dr. Fauci are looking at is those are some scary numbers, 18 months and 2 million people. Now, can you break that down? Does that mean that we'll be quarantined for 18 months? Does that mean we'll be social distanced for 18 months? Does that really mean that 2 million people are going to die? What does that really mean? Well, what Ferguson was doing was modeling for both the UK and the U.S., uh, what would happen if if no effective measures are put into force? So let's put the 2.2 million in in perspective, and then and then he offered several other scenarios, and he did something similar for the UK and said over 500,000 would die if 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 effective measures are not put in place. The point of all of this was that he he was looking at the two greatest laggards in uh, in the West in getting getting uh, active and focused uh, in a deliberate fashion, the UK. Um, and the United States, and then putting this very dramatic and stark model together, and then working through, I believe, Dr. Burks to get this study tabled inside the White House, which was a remarkable thing to happen. Um, on the question around 18 months, I think that uh, the argument that's being made by Ferguson and others is we will not get control over this until we have a vaccine that's available on a mass scale. That's not likely to happen until the fall of 2021, to be quite honest. And that's under the best of scenarios. And so we, 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 we need to keep that in mind. We can't just uh, put in force these, these tough measures and expect that we're going to uh, uh, reverse them and roll them back, peel them back, and not have a resurgence of, 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 of infections. And we're going to have to be experimenting. Some critics have said, I mean, some experts have said we're moving into not a flattening the curve. We're, we're, we're heading into a series of bumps where it's like tapping your brakes when you're on a sheet of ice. Um, and, and we're going to be experimenting and moving forward. But 
what Ferguson is saying is we need to keep our eye on the ball that until we have a vaccine, we're going to have a very perilous situation in the public health side. And it has huge consequences for the economy. Right. Okay. And we're going to get to that in a minute. The second thing I want to ask you, and I think a lot of Americans want to try to understand, is what does shelter in place actually mean? I mean, I think the Bay Area is ordered to shelter in place, but on the news, we're seeing lots of people in the Bay Area, you know, jogging on the Golden Gate Bridge. That doesn't feel like they're really sheltering in place. What is what does it actually mean? Well, the mayor um, uh, made very clear that uh, there were going to be flexibilities in this. They allow people uh, to go out to um, medical emergencies, to pharmacies and to get food. Uh, uh, they're uh, 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 allowing people to exercise in, in the outdoors as long as they are um, uh, uh, six feet apart. Uh, but everything else stops. I mean, everything else stops. And that's uh, a lockdown. Um, it's a lockdown with flexibilities built into it. We don't have police on every corner, as you might find in Wuhan, taking people's temperatures. Uh, and, and we don't have people being separated forcefully, forcibly from their homes and put into isolation uh, uh, institutions. Um, I'm assuming that there's, there's, this is being used to, to, to move very rapidly towards trying to get much better test, testing data. Um, but keep in mind what she's doing, what Mayor Breed is doing is taking a page out of the history books on 2018 and 19, the studies that have been done across the country of what happened then. Keep in mind, we lost 670,000 people in a country a third the size of today's country. Um, there were studies done uh, of the responses in different cities, and those showed that the leadership that came down really hard, really fast, and really early had dramatically lower fatality rates. People are looking at the Spanish flu outbreak in the United States. There have been historical studies done, published in the journals um, in recent years that looked analytically and comparatively at the experience of different cities in the United States and drew some very stark contrast between, for instance, the experiences in, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, what I think is happening is that's on the minds of Mayor Breed and Mayor de Blasio is I've got a window to act. I've got to, I've got to have the courage to do that, but I also have to be very prepared for what a crushing impact it's going to have on the economy. And I have to be able to take care of those people who are in lockdown mode, who can't take care of themselves. And that's, I think that's a huge responsibility. And also that it may work in the short term, but over time it becomes very difficult to sustain as people become much more uncomfortable and they may not be convinced that this sort of discipline is going to pay off. Stephanie, I want to turn to you. The economy um, is in a mess, to say the least. Um, what are you seeing? Well, I'm, I'm seeing that as well. I'm seeing kind of a continuation of a theme that we've been discussing and going on a, a month or more, and that's the uncertainty theme. The fact that markets don't like uncertainty and the unique nature of the current challenge is that we have uncertainty with regard to the virus itself and the, the health impacts, the duration of the outbreak, the response to the outbreak, and then that trickles down to uncertainty with regard to economic outcomes. And the two are very much linked because the response, as Steve just said, has economic impacts. And I think um, the markets and, and individuals have been digesting this in waves. 
what's changed in the last couple of days, I guess two things, you've seen a really massive um, government response. We had these extraordinary announcements coming out from the Fed on Sunday, taking extraordinary action, cutting interest rates again, um, announcing another 700 billion in asset purchases, making swap lines to other central banks more available, more accessible. Then again, yesterday, we had the announcement of additional facilities, including a commercial paper facility. And you've had um, what appears to be bipartisan support for a massive fiscal response. And yet you look at what's happening with markets today, and they're down at last check, um, another, I think, five percentage points or so. So um, when you try and link up, why is there such a disconnect between what should be received favorably by markets, and that is a pretty massive and unified government response, and still a very negative market reaction. And it's because of that uncertainty, a recognition that things are very bad, a recognition that the measures that need to be taken are more extreme than I think had been previously appreciated, and not yet knowing where is the end of this, and where is the end in terms of the measure, but also where is the end, where is the bottom? What can we expect in days to come? I mean, is the government going to halt trading? Are there are we headed towards a real depression? Well, on the economic impact, I mean, this has been, you know, this debate, are we in a recession? Are we headed for a recession? Is it just in the U.S.? Is it global? I mean, I, I think folks, myself included, are reluctant to give kind of point estimates as far as how bad it could get because of the uncertainty that I just described. The good news is I think policymakers benefiting from the experience back in 2007, 2008 and on with the European crisis, I I think policymakers have been very quick to recognize that this economic shock is going to get transmitted to the financial sector short of really extraordinary measures. And so they've been very quick to move And I give them a lot of credit. I'm not sure the markets are there just yet, but I give them a lot of credit for appreciating that transmission channel and acting to prevent markets from seizing up. I do think these questions, the ones that Steve raised initially, I think these questions are ones that have to be answered. I think where there's the need for certainty, first and foremost, again, is on what is the health response here. And... Until we have that, until we have clarity on the containment measures, which Steve can talk more about this, of you know the status of testing, um, because my understanding is you've got to get that piece in order to be able to move forward with a strategy that actually contains and restricts people that are infected, but then you can actually resume some normal functioning provided you have a way to control the spread. And that all starts with testing. So until that piece is in place and addressed, you're not going to reassure folks that we know where the bottom is. So you're really saying that until we get the health piece right, the market's not going to get right. I think that's absolutely the case. Yeah. And, you know, I I agree entirely with what Stephanie's saying here, that uh, we need reliable and granular data that's that is comprehensive in order to really know how to isolate and and contain. If you have families that are under uh, shelter in place uh, and someone gets uh, begins feeling ill, 
that person has to be able somehow to verify status um, in, in understanding how to cope with this and what are the risks and the like. And people who are, who are get feeling ill all over the country are still unable to find testing today. The majority of people cannot. So um, how long is it going to take for us to, to expand that to some level that is feasible? We don't really know. We don't have time to wait in imposing the, the, the social distancing and more and more and stiffer measures because we have to, we have to hope that people isolating today will slow the transmission with or without effective testing. But being able to peel off those controls requires data. Having the best response requires data. Having an exit strategy requires data. Uh, Heather, I want to turn to you. It's reported that Italy's hospitals are being pushed to the brink. But at the same time, we're also hearing that the Russians are deploying coronavirus disinformation to sow panic uh, all over the West. And there's an EU document that uh, talks about that. Can you give us your assessment of what's going on? Well, thanks, Andrew. Yes, uh, you know, the epicenter of the crisis is Europe, and that core uh, is in northern Italy, Lombardy. And you just, I keep waking up hoping that that curve starts flattening for Italy, that we can start seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. In fact, it's just not. Uh, the death rate is incredibly high. Uh, I just saw an anecdotal report that suggests it just went up uh, over 300 deaths just today. So, uh, we're really watching where Italy, in some ways, is a, is a global cautionary tale of how to be prepared. And it is compelling and motivating New York City uh, and, and New York State, as well as the state of Washington, I think, to start taking these extraordinary measures to start preparing. And of course, our, our hearts are just really breaking for the for the people of, of Italy. You're absolutely right. Um, unfortunately, great power competition is not letting up in a global pandemic. And so we see two impacts actually playing out across Europe. First, you're absolutely right, Russian disinformation. Again, the, 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 the real bottom line, what Russia is trying to do is amplify the confusion, the chaos, the uncertainty, uh, in, ensuring to instill fear and lack of confidence in government leaders and institutions. Uh, it's just, again, taking advantage of the moment to fuel uh, doubt and uncertainty about democracies and to emphasize that authoritarian leaders like Vladimir Putin Putin, like Xi Jinping of China, they're uniquely uh, skilled in being able to manage crises uh, like this. So uh, in, in very specific cases, like in the United Kingdom, there has been specific disinformation that suggests that the UK started uh, the coronavirus um, and linking this to perhaps um, it was the UK that was actually responsible for poisoning of the Skripals in Salisbury, if you recall, the use of uh, Russian Novichok poisoning. So again, it, it's uniquely tailored. That's Russia. Now let's look at China. China uh, has been stepping into a breach where EU countries have not necessarily initially uh, shown solidarity and helping Italy with, with protective masks, ventilators, uh, items that were in desperate need. The Chinese have flown in an aircraft of those supplies. Uh, they've responded to uh, the Spanish government's request for 
additional supplies. The Serbian president has uh, has said that uh, President Xi Jinping is Serbia's greatest friend, and and China is providing aid to to Serbia. So you're seeing where whether it's disinformation or hearts and minds um, taking advantage of of this crisis and changing the narrative. So it's something that uh, unfortunately we do have to pay attention to. If I may add, uh, Andrew, to what Heather said is on the China side also. I mean, we have this very dramatic development with the expulsions of the major American journalists from China, steps taken by the Trump administration to have the Chinese media outlets here designated as state entities and register as such. And we've also seen a, a sharp escalation in a sort of reciprocal name calling. Uh, that, of course, is just another sign of how deeply fragmented and divided we are internationally in the midst of this crisis. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Steve, how is the tit for tat between China and the U.S. right now? There's a war of words going on between the Trump administration and the Chinese, and it's played out in terms of the journalists and in other ways. Um, how is that affecting the crisis? Well, you know, the, the reality we face today is that there's no there's there's no coherent international uh, elite high level coordinated effort underway to look at both the public health crisis and in combination with the its companion, the global economic crisis and think creatively around and cooperatively about how to unwind this. This is a planetary phenomenon. Um, this is something unlike anything we have ever imagined or experienced, and yet we're locked into these uh, bitter adversarial defensive positions where we're digging into our own sovereign and nationalist instincts and dealing with the immediate crisis in front of us and trying to cast blame to others outside of our borders, which uh, is the exact opposite of what we need right now which is to begin thinking creatively about how we're going to act in concert at a global level to try to unwind these dual crises. We're a long ways from that right now. And we've, of course, Trump administration has stepped off the stage in so many ways or offended and burned bridges in so many ways. And as Heather suggested, others are taking full advantage of that. Well, haven't we imagined these kinds of scenarios? I mean, even at CSIS, um, our colleagues, Kath Hicks and Sam Brannon, did a tabletop exercise last summer that was eerily similar to, to what happened here. Uh, they published a, a report and uh, wrote an article about it in Politico magazine, which you could read. Um, we've imagined these kinds of scenarios. But isn't it that our international institutions are pretty weak and we can't bring all these countries together to act jointly? Well, you certainly cannot. Can, you cannot rely or expect that the World Health Organization under Dr. Tedros, which has done a, a fine job in many, many respects, certainly far better than the WHO performance during the 2014-2015 Ebola crisis. We cannot expect that um, uh, Dr. Tedros is going to be able to sort of command the attention of the world's leaders to, to begin thinking and behaving um, differently in this period. And yes, the the types of exercises that have gone on, there was a famous Clade X exercise that Tom Inglesby at Hopkins put together two years ago, very dramatic, um, which, which showed these huge gaps and also a very sharp escalation that happens and timing issues be, be, uh, race forward 
um, beyond the ability to uh, to pause and 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 rethink what you're doing. So you're operating on impartial knowledge, and you're operating without much of much awareness of how others are seeing this. It's, there's a sort of prisoner's dilemma to much of what's happening right now. Steve, closer to home, our institutions are having to function as well, both at federal and state level. Your friend and, and our friend Larry Gostin over at Georgetown has said that he doesn't believe that the federal government has the right to override the state governments in these situations. Um, what about that? The um, there is a first thing to say is we haven't had exactly a an informed discussion around the the limits of, of quarantine powers between the federal, the the state and local authorities for some time. The law, as it's written, says that the federal government has the authority to control entry uh, uh, into the United States and to control travel between the states and that the states and localities have control over quarantining of populations that are in there inside their borders. Um, and the, uh, the, uh, in contrast to what Larry Gostin, Professor Gostin has said, other experts, um, look at this and say, you know, we have a confusing patchwork of authorities around these quarantine issues. And we haven't, you know, we just invoked the quarantine act, um, in, in for the first time in 50 years for those who were brought back, a uh, very narrow application to, those that came from China, those American citizens who came from China and put into 14-day quarantines on U.S. military bases. But if we uh, are at a point where the president would like to use uh, it to amend and, and expand uh, his authorities to override decisions that are being made at a state or municipal level, will he have the power and authority to do that without having to amend the law? That is a subject of debate right now. And there are opposing views, both within our own government, opposing to Larry's view within our own government and within legal among, within legal scholars that say, yes, indeed, he has that authority. We will not have to go back to Congress to amend the law. Um, I think we'll see court challenges coming up in the midst of this crisis. I think you can expect court challenges to what Mayor Breed has done in San Francisco. Well, in some ways, Europe is a microcosm of the, the lack of global coordination. Uh, you've seen a series of uh, governments take unilateral decisions to close borders um, and the European Union attempting to catch up to create a little co coherence around uh, that. Uh, it's still causing a great deal of chaos. For example, Poland has sealed uh, its borders. Uh, there are now uh, truck and uh, lines that extend over 50 kilometers that have been there for days, not allowing travelers uh, from the three Baltic states to continue on. Um, you're, you're seeing some similar dynamics uh, with, within uh, Germany. Uh, there's concern because the United Kingdom is not implementing the, exactly the same types of measures, more severe measures of closing universities, schools, um, uh, 
limiting limiting movement. There's now suggestion that the UK citizens uh, will be blocked from coming uh, into Europe. So what you're seeing is uh, exactly, again, a lack of solidarity. Uh, nations are making decisions uh, based on their own merits. Uh, and the EU was trying to create some solidarity, whether that's shutting down borders or uh, perhaps joining forces because the economic impact uh, of this crisis, as Stephanie was was describing, is going to be pretty acute for, for Europe already entering the global pandemic um, in, a, in a weakened economic state. The, their banks are not healthy. And of course, again, Italy was perhaps one of the weakest links in, in, the, in the Eurozone uh, economically and financially. So you, you're going to need massive coordination. But right now, they're just simply trying to slow the virus. You see the uh, in number of cases and deaths rising, particularly in Spain uh, and in Germany and France. Portugal just uh, declared a state of emergency this morning. So again, what we sort of see is this, this is sort of drifting, moving south, uh, starting to move north uh, and starting to see the cases increase in northern Europe as well. So I'm, I'm extremely concerned about the lack of coordination, uh, the severity of the crisis. Um, and again, this is this is going to be a profound challenge to the structures and the institutions of the European Union itself. So uh, all of these uh, all of these issues are just compounding a, a very difficult and complex challenge. And Stephanie, I hate to put you on the spot with the economy, but we're all in pins and needles here. What do you think? Let me let me just go back on the the global coordination point because as you know Andrew we put out a piece I think it was just today and a number of others have put out pieces um, calling for uh, improved global coordination in particular citing the G20 and you you mentioned you know these international institutions are not necessarily functioning um, to meet their their reason for being in the first place. But I attribute that it, it's um, these institutions derive their power and their mandate from the individual leaders. Um, and so it's it's there that I actually see that we have a failing. I think where we have multilateral institutions with technical expertise at the top, I think they have been doing their jobs. I think the WHO in, in labeling this a pandemic and invoking responses from member countries that way, that is functioning. You've had you know, both the World Bank and the IMF and the regional development banks readying themselves for the crisis. But what we really need is that global leadership. And that, of course, is hindered um, by this competition that we're seeing among the very members of the G20. So I think we need to get past that. And in combination, we need to get the health piece of this right. And I think that's really what um, what markets are, are looking for. Um, and bracing for what we all know is going to be a, a sheep sharp downturn and um, and putting the facilities and responses in place so that we can kind of minimize that downturn. And when this passes, we can get back. Um, to, to normalcy. And that's where I, I think if we can get that global coordination piece right, there are reasons to be optimistic, um, not to be Pollyanna, but to be optimistic. And I'll go back to, to what I said before. Policymakers on the financial and economic side recognize how bad this is, and they have taken steps to address that, that outcome. I think that if we can get the science and the health response right, and the global leadership. There's reason to, to be hopeful. 
I want to thank everybody for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this. And we'll be talking to all of you uh, in the days and weeks to come. Thanks again. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. 